Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Gentlemen, if we could uh, now begin tonight's Canberra Times ANU Meet the Author event with Graham Simpson, and I'm Colin Steele, convener of the events. And I think tonight we probably need mulled wine with Rosie rather than cider with Rosie, but we're grateful a lot of you being able to come out in the cold tonight. First of all, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of Ngunnawal people past and present. As usual, the housekeeping, mobile phones, if you could switch them off. And I should like to thank Text Publishing and Jane Novak for facilitating tonight's event with Graham. There'll be an opportunity for questions after Graham's presentation, uh, and Catherine and I will be around with microphones. If, again, you could wait, put your hand up for the, the mic, and then wait for the microphone to come to you. Sally Pryor, the arts editor of the Canberra Times, will moderate the question period and give the vote of thanks around five to seven before the book signings in the foyer. I know a lot of you have had your books signed already, but we hope a lot more of you come later will get those signed in the foyer. But do allow Graham to get to the foyer before um, meeting him en route. <laughs> we have two forthcoming events open for bookings. Next week on October 22nd, the ever-popular Hugh McKay will speak about the art of belonging, a sequel to his best-selling The Good Life, which looks to a society that, quote, sustains and nurtures the many, not just the fortunate few. And on November the 11th at 6 p.m., uh, Peter Fitzsimmons will speak on his new book on Gallipoli. Graham Simpson really needs no introduction after the phenomenal critical and commercial success of the Rosie Project, which won the Australian Book Industries Award for Book of the Year and sold more than 1.3 million copies in over 42 countries. The Rosie Project was also the most requested book from the ACT Public Library System in 2013 which incidentally had beat out Sarah Wilson's I Quit Sugar and the stalking of Julia Gillard. <laughs> when Graham came to Canberra just after the Rosie Project's publication as an unknown debut author, an ANU colleague who attended his Monica talk reported back that the audience was, quote, largely women who were in love with Don Tillman and projected this onto Graham. <laughs> I'm not sure if this has morphed Graham into a female fan club like Tom Jones, but he's now achieved almost fictional rock star status with over 300 global events since that early Canberra talk, including five tours of the United States. And it's perhaps relevant that the new book is set in New York where Don and Rosie confront pregnancy together, or perhaps not together. <laughs> Graham has stressed in an interview that the new book is not a romantic comedy. He rather prefers the term lad-lit as a label, although his US publisher would prefer the term chick-lit, being, quote, distinguished by being about relationships. We look forward to hearing more about the relationships of Rosie and Don in tonight's talk. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Graham Simpson. Greetings. <laughs> to solve the immediate nutrition problem, I selected a vegetarian recipe at random from one of the websites. 
A jog via Trader Joe's sufficed to source all the necessary ingredients for a tofu and squash flan. I was left with an afternoon of unscheduled time, an ideal opportunity to do some research in line with Jean's advice. It seemed wise to delay the shower and change until after my excursion, especially as the weather forecast indicated a 30% probability of rain. I put my light raincoat on over my jogging costume and added a cycling hat for hair protection. <laughs> there was a small playground on 10th Avenue, only a few blocks away. It was perfect. I was able to sit on a bench alone and watch children with their guardians. Binoculars would have been helpful, <laughs> but I could observe gross motor actions and even hear some conversation, especially as much of it was shouted. I was not disturbed. In fact, on the sole occasion that a child approached me, it was immediately summoned back. <laughs> I made several observations in my notebook. The children explored for short distances, but routinely checked and returned to their guardians. I recalled seeing a documentary in which this behaviour was made more obvious by fast motion replay, but could not recall what type of animal was involved. My phone had substantial available memory, so I began shooting my own video. Jean would definitely be interested. My recording was interrupted by some kind of communal activity. The guardians and children gathered together for approximately 20 seconds and then moved to the other end of the playground, where my view of them was obscured by a central island of foliage. I followed and sat where I could observe them again, but they did not resume their play. I decided to wait and use the time to change the video resolution on my phone in case there was an opportunity to film a longer segment. Due to my focus on the camera operating task, I did not notice the approach of two uniformed male police officers. <laughs> In retrospect, I may not have handled the situation well, <laughs> but it was an unfamiliar social protocol in unexpected circumstances driven by rules which I did not know. I was also struggling with the video application, which I had downloaded because of its superior compression algorithm without due attention to its user friendliness. What do you think you're doing? This was the marginally older policeman. I guess they were both in their 30s and in good physical shape. Body mass index is approximately 23. <laughs> I think I'm configuring the resolution, but it's possible I'm doing something different. It's unlikely you will be able to assist unless you're familiar with the application. Well, I guess we should get out of your way and leave you with the kids. Excellent. Good luck fighting crime. <laughs> Get up. This was an unexpected change of attitude on the part of the younger colleague. Perhaps I was seeing a demonstration of the good cop, bad cop protocol. I looked to good cop to see if I would receive contrary instructions. Do you also require me to stand up? Good cop assisted me to stand. <laughs> Forcefully. My dislike of being touched is visceral. My response was similarly automatic. I did not pin or throw my assailant, but I did use a simple Aikido move to disengage and distance him from me. He staggered back and bad cop pulled his gun. Good cop produced handcuffs. And uh, Don Tillman's in trouble again. Oh, wow. There are a lot of people here this evening braving the cold. I've got to tell you, it was not always like this. If I roll the clock back 
to the publication of the Rosie Project, the first book, and we are only talking about the beginning of last year. It wasn't quite so easy to get a major gig like this. In, if you want to draw the uh, Collins rock star analogy, um, bands tend to have to start off in small country towns, and that's what happened to me. First early gig, rural South Australian town, in the library, three o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday, <laughs> and I arrived, and the bookseller was already set up, and I said hi, introduced myself, and said, well, how many books did you bring? And he said, 10. <laughs> I said, whoa, is that going to be enough? And he said, your first time, is it? <laughs> and then my audience arrived um, in various means of travel, you know, wheelers, chairs, those sorts of things. All eight of them, women of a certain age, plus about 20 years and showed absolutely no interest in my introduction. Hi, I'm Graham Simpson. Thought, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Made a beeline for the free tea and biscuits <laughs> and proceeded to catch up on the, on, the week's, on the week's gossip. And at a certain point, the librarian stepped in and she said, you know, in effect, she said, you know, this is the compulsory part. We'll get it over with as quickly as possible. <laughs> I'd like to introduce Graham... <clears throat> Sim Sion, author of The Rosie Project. Welcome him to our library. I'd also like to welcome Harry. Now, she could have said Harry, the independent bookseller, trying to make a living as part of the as, as a centre of commerce in a small regional town at a time where booksellers of all stripes face real challenges from the big international internet booksellers, but she didn't say any of that. She just said, here's Harry, and he's got some books for sale. But of course, you don't need to buy them, you can borrow them from the library. <laughs> and Harry and I exchanged glances, and it became fairly obvious why he only had ten books <laughs> for the eight people. So. I did my introduction and I, and I gave the bit of shtick, the spiel. I said, come on guys, you know, you've got to understand it's got a t he's a hub of commerce, he brings people together, part of the community. <laughs> Was not cutting any ice. So finally I said, well, I guess you probably will, if you want to read the book, borrow it from the library. <laughs> Good, but let me put something to you. Sometime in the next few months you are going to need to buy somebody a gift. And you know how hard that is. Coming up with an idea for someone, male or female, between the ages of 13 and 99. You don't know too much about their taste. You want it to be uplifting, not too expensive, to have a personal touch, perhaps a story behind it. And you know it'll be raining outside, and you think, I've got to go out to the shop, and they probably won't have whatever I've come up with. And you will be so grateful that that day at the library, you bought that pile of signed copies of The Rosie Project, and you will peel one of them off the pile, and all your problems will be solved. And at the end of the session, we sold all ten books. <laughs> with three on back order. So, <laughs> so, let me begin as it were, by just reminding you of what I said to the little old ladies and suggest you may in turn 
as we approach the Christmas season face the same problem. <laughs> and I, I'm here to help you with that, with that problem, as are the good people of the co-op. So now to the, to the part of the night. Thank you very, very much, Colin, for your kind words. Thank you in advance to Sally. Thank you, Sally, because she wrote a very nice review or story about the book in the Canberra Times. So I'm very happy about that. Thank you, everybody, for making me so welcome here tonight and for braving the weather. Fantastic. So what am I going to do? What, what I thought I would... Who's heard me speak before? Hands up. All right. It's not a matter of finding new material, just new audiences. Though... <laughs> Those few people who put their hands up have been brave enough to come back. I will cover a little of the same material, but I will try to do it in a slightly different way because I figure what we need to cover is broadly how I became a writer, where I got the idea for the Rosie Project, what's happened since, and I'd particularly like to talk about the reaction from the autism and Asperger's communities. Um, just to add that little intellectual touch to an Australian National University talk. And where the idea, briefly, where the idea for the Rosie Effect came from and how I went about doing that. And at that point, we should have time for questions. Now, I figure that will take about 58 years to tell that story in its entirety, because that's roughly how long it's taken to live it. But what we do in storytelling, part of the art of storytelling, is choosing what moments to put on the page. Even more critical when you're doing screenwriting and you're trying to get the whole thing done in an hour and a half or so. So what I want to do is present you with a few scenes. And the scenes I will present you with are largely turning points. Moments where my life, or the book, went off in an unexpected direction. Typically because a door got slammed in my face because I wasn't good enough and I had to look around to find another door to go through. So that'll be the essence of the story and you can See if you can grab the threads together. So let's start. I'm eight years old. I'm sitting in my primary school class and my teacher comes over to me and she says, Graham, remember last week I said your essay was the best essay I had read all year? From a boy. Um, <laughs> she said, well, and I said I would show it to the head teacher. Well, here it is back. She gave it to me and the head teacher had written on it I will not read any essay that begins with the word I. <laughs> and she was very comforting to me and she said, I recommend the word during as the ideal word to start an essay. <laughs> so now you know. So if, if you were dramatising this and putting it in a film, what you would then see is me shoving aside my essay and reaching out for my book on astronomy and burying my head in that. And we would roll the clock forward to me finishing my physics degree at the age of 19 or so. And I would be on the verge of failing that physics degree. But I would be, the final exam, I would sit down knowing that I couldn't do the math in the exam. Quantum mechanics A, quantum mechanics B, quantum mechanics C were the core subjects we were doing. Not a lot of variety there and it was all maths. And this was the Quantum Mechanics B exam. And you imagine this a scene in a movie. You'd see all these geeks waiting, all male, by the way, an all-male class in physics back in the 1970s, waiting to do the exam paper for, with their calculators at the ready and so on, their Hewlett-Packard calculators. And, and then zero in. There's only one question on the paper. And the question is, what is the meaning of quantum mechanics? And Graham picks up his pen and begins writing furiously because nobody else in that class could write an essay to save their lives. 
And, and as a result, I was able to scrape through the physics course, but I wasn't stupid enough to keep trying, realised I wasn't smart enough to be a theoretical physicist, and did what people in those days who weren't smart enough to be a physicist or a mathematician or had dropped out for some other reason did with their skills. They went into information technology. <laughs> and if you think people today, computer guys today, are geeks, you were not there in the 1970s. <laughs> Because back in the 1970s, there weren't courses in doing this. You couldn't just be like an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or any of those things, just run and roll on the course and you know, through the sausage machine, splat out the other end, with, with apologies to my hosts tonight. Um, <laughs> there was the, question, the question was back then was, well, what sort of people might be good with computers? I don't know. People who aren't good with people, I suppose. <laughs> So we were gathered together and I got a job with a big insurance company working in computing and after a couple of years of it, turning point, I thought maybe I need to get my head together, maybe I should be doing something different. So I did what you did in the 70s if you needed to get your head together, I purchased a 1962 combi van, I got together with my best mate and the two of us drove around Australia for six months and as we were driving I started reading a bit. I was reading Hemingway, big on bullfighting. Henry Miller, big on sex. That was, that was interesting up to a point. But I thought, you know what? Especially the Hemingway, this stuff doesn't look too hard. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, come on, give me a break. Why do men kill themselves? I don't know, Nick. Do women ever kill themselves? Sometimes, Nick. How hard is this stuff going to be? <laughs> so, so I wrote a few pages of Hemingway-esque prose about two young men going around Australia in a combi van, handed it to my, to my friend John, and he looked at it and he said, wow, Graham, he said, I think you've chosen the right career in information technology. So, <laughs> so I went back to my job, and you know, there are some turning points that you know are turning points in your life. They happen and you say, wow, the world has just changed. They're usually a bad one. And sometimes something happens and you don't realise at the time that it's going to be a big deal. But there I was sitting at my desk and I said we were geeky. But we had one guy in the department. Any IT people here? Okay, I've got two words for you. Systems programmer, okay? You will know who this man is. This is the smartest guy in the whole department, the most technical guy in the whole department, and arguably the least socially adept person in, a, in the department. Bowl haircut, you know, no belt, no tie and so forth. I didn't know him too well, but he walks over to my desk <laughs> and he says, without further ado, Graham, I am considering enrolling in a Master of Business Administration degree. Okay. <laughs> Seems an odd choice, but um, okay, can I ask why? Yes, I have been stereotyped as a geek. I, I intend to acquire the knowledge necessary to overcome that stereotyping. Okay. Fairly geeky approach to the problem, but you know, fair enough. And I said, can I, can I ask, um, why are you telling me this? And he said, since you suffer from the same problem. <laughs> Wake up calls come no clearer than that one. <laughs> and I duly enrolled in a Master of Business Administration degree. <laughs> and he said to me, we work together, we should study together and we should timeshare study with physical fitness. <laughs> so we would go jogging together 
And he, with a mind like a steel trap, would have memorised the pre-reading and would be dumping it into my ear. And in due course, he dropped out of the MBA. It really wasn't his thing at all. But I discovered that behind the um, somewhat uh, challenging exterior was a very interesting and knowledgeable man. And we kept jogging. And I learned, he was the first person I heard about the internet from. He was the first person I heard about Wikipedia from. He was the first person who I heard about all sorts of things that I had no interest whatsoever in from. Today's topic will be remote access to Sun workstations using the new security protocol. <laughs> Do I care? Doesn't matter, that's the today's topic. <laughs> so, it's the way to have a broad education. So, and, and to keep fit, and to keep fit. So, anyway, but I, I got distracted talking about my friend, although there was a great story I'd love to tell you about us going to New York one time and going out to dinner being invited by a client out to dinner at a restaurant which had a jacket code and he turns up wearing a bushwalking jacket and we proceed to have a very serious discussion about why his jacket is superior to mine in all respects. <laughs> Visibility and low light, impervious to water. On a night like tonight, you would have to see the logic of it. But, <laughs> but I, I digress because meantime, I had of course completed the MBA. I had thrown off all vestiges of being geeky myself, bar the multi <laughs> bar possibly the multicolored signing pens, <laughs> which are not in rainbow order. I'm not an obsessive, uh, and I had established a company, a, a business and IT consultancy, which employed around uh, 60, 70 people with offices in Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, and then. I read the book that changed my life. And the book was called The Unkindest Cut. It was by Joe Queenan, an American film critic, and it described how he'd gone about, um, or set out, to make a full-length feature movie for $7,000, to emulate Robert Rodriguez, who had famously made the film El Mariachi in Mexico for $7,000, which he raised by selling his own blood. Yeah, Joe sold no blood. Joe took the money out in his credit card, wrote a script, cast his friends, borrowed equipment, kept pouring money into it until he almost destroyed his marriage and at the end the film was a turkey. But he wrote a book about it, I closed the book and I said to my wife, Anne, we've got to do this. And she said words to the effect of, what do you mean, we? <laughs> but, 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 I had this major leverage point. She had been writing since she was eight years old. She had got two books, two manuscripts of the final stage at a major publisher. She had, a, she had an agent. She was almost there. And then she got a major promotion at work. And she decided that uh, being a professor of psychiatry, doing something about postnatal depression around the world was perhaps more important than writing the next psychological thriller. But I said to her, you know, you may never see your books in print, but imagine one of them on the big screen. I'll adapt it. Anyway, to cut, well, I spent four months adapting it. Um, I read seven books on screenwriting, starting with Sid Field's screenplay, and then writing the script, using all the books and so forth. We shot it using friends and so forth. In the spirit of Joe Queenan, we spent way too much money. And when the final film was made, 300 of us packed it, uh, close friends packed into a, a cinema and watched it, and that should have been the end of it. Except that the director was in a film course, one of the more qualified people on the project, and, and she took it along to school, and Sue Maslin, 
film producer, think uh, Road to Mill, um, Japanese Story, Hunt Angels, very established, very respected Australian film producer, saw it. And she said, well, there's a lot not to like about this film. <laughs> Perhaps I should give you a clue. And despite the, the rock star, I this was before I was a rock star, I played, um, I played the male romantic lead. So <laughs> <laughs> not nice. <laughs> But, but you get the point. Um, there were some limitations in the film. But she said, you know, at least it's watchable. And most first feature-length film efforts are just not watchable. She said, Graeme, you spent too much money. You said, but the smartest money you spent was on a professional screenwriter. <laughs> Spot the turning point. Graeme sells business, enrolls in an undergraduate qualification in screenwriting at the age of 50, having not written any fiction besides that adaptation since high school, and does so with the full support of his wife, eventually, <laughs> <laughs> after promising to continue the day job in doing some independent freelance consulting, but saying goodbye to the dream of, of massive stock exchange listing and corporate success and so forth. Going into the course, I wanted, I wanted an idea for a film that I could work on as I progressed through the course. So I would, everything I learnt, I could apply to that. I knew from my screenwriting reading and from my practice that good stories come out of character. If you've got a really good character, that can be the basis of a strong story. And I thought, what sort of characters do I know that... You can probably see where I'm heading here, can't you? <laughs> OK. So I invented a character called Don Tillman. The voice of my good friend, the jogger, was in my ear, but not every facet of his life. I made, a, I made this man a physicist instead. And my idea was this would be a drama. As we watched it, we would learn about physics and marvel at the wonders of the universe, quantum mechanics, cosmology, and it would be called the face of God. <laughs> so, <clears throat> first class, I took the project Two, they asked us to write a short story about a character. I wrote a short story about Don Tillman. I called it The Jacket Incident. <laughs> and, and, and when you write, or when I write, you take something from real life, I do, but then you twist it and turn it in all sorts of ways. So all I did was take the core of the real jacket incident where my friend and I were arguing about his jacket and blow it up into something a great deal bigger. But drama, this was a man on a first date. Scary stuff and things go wrong from a social point of view and so on. Well, I took it to class. Oh, before I took it to class, I showed it to my combi friend. And he said, wow, writing's improved, Graham. <laughs> he said, nice little story about a guy with Asperger's. Asperger's. <laughs> okay, I guess. Because none of us around, yeah? Like, you know, people weren't identified with Asperger's, and diagnosed with it in my time. And if they've got through life reasonably comfortably, into older age, they, they never have that diagnosis, oh, I guess. So I took it to class. This is a story about a man with Asperger's syndrome. Well, there were two things. The first one was, when it finished the story, all that anybody wanted to talk about was Asperger's syndrome. So you say this guy's got Asperger's, Graham. I don't think he'd really want to go on a date. I think he'd probably want to stay home and play with his computer or his Xbox or something like that. It's unrealistic. Graham, you've got him drinking. I don't think people with Asperger's drink. Oh, well, maybe some drink, but, but you know, I think you should have a typical Asperger's guy here and he shouldn't drink. Is he wearing socks? <laughs> what? I read somewhere that people with Asperger's don't like the feel of socks. 
Now, I think we need to know if he's wearing socks, and if he is wearing socks, what he did to overcome that. <laughs> and I realised that all I wanted to talk about was Asperger's, not about my character. At the end of the class, the teacher said, Graham, I think we're all agreed, you need to do more research on Asperger's. <laughs> and I thought, never mention that word again. If you want to diagnose Don Tillman as having Asperger's, good luck to you. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say it because, you know, otherwise you look at it and say, oh, he can't have Asperger's. He's been incorrectly represented because people with Asperger's don't drink. Da -da 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 -da. The other thing was they laughed their heads off all the way through. Hey guys, this is supposed to be drama. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> well, I realised and was to have this confirmed with my comedy mentor years later, Tim Ferguson. If you are gifted a character who generates comedy wherever he or she goes, don't waste them on drama. Comedy is harder, trust me. And I had an ethical question, are we laughing at a disability? And I'll give you a fairly swift answer here because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and consulting with people in the Asperger's community. Basically, Don Tillman does not consider himself disabled in any way. He considers himself in a minority, and it's annoying that society won't accommodate people who are different, like him. Um, also, what we're laughing at largely is the unexpected. Well, it's occasionally we're laughing at observational comedy. Don Tillman, you know, yeah, observational comedian, gets up and says, so what's this about? I mean, what's it about when you have to wear a jacket when you go to a restaurant? I mean, what's that about? Don's asking that sincerely, and it's a good question. So, anyway, I got to a point where I was comfortable with the, the Asperger's, whether or not we identified it aspect. I did no research on Asperger's. Don Tillman is drawn from people, and you know, people say, how much research did you do on Asperger's? Answer, 30 years in information technology. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention physics and a PhD, okay? Yeah, you guys don't get off the hook that lightly, these people from ANU. So, so, I didn't, you know, I didn't do any, any actual research on Asperger's, that's where Don came from. And the, so, over five years, the, my script changed. It moved from being the face of God to being the Clara Project to being the Rosie Project when Clara was discarded as not strong enough for Don. The toughest part of the job was inventing Rosie, someone who would be, take it up to Don, but still have a need for him. And I got a lot of help from my wife, the psychiatrist, in, in Rosie's backstory. So we had the Rosie Project, okay. Sitting down now with a producer, film producer, saying, I'd love to make your film, Graham, but it's very hard to get romantic comedy made in Australia now. How many people here saw any questions for Ben? Hands up. Look around the room. Put your hands up. Put your hands up if you saw it. That's why, okay? Not enough hands up. The working dog guys who made any questions for Ben are arguably Australia's finest makers of comedy, film and television. You think The Castle, uh, you think um, we're in Canberra. Think about uh, The Hollow Men and so on, the, the recent one that's on at the moment. Um, yeah, if they can't get it up, then we're not back in Graham Simpson. So she was saying, we're gonna be, you're going to be looking for funding interest from the UK or US studios, and all they want to do is minimise risk. They want to do a remake, they want to do a sequel, or they want to adapt best-selling novel. Cut two. <laughs> At the computer. The Rosie Project. Open brackets. A novel. Close brackets. And then the moment where everything changes in the story. I type the first word and the first word is... 
I. <laughs> and it's a very important word because it means we're now telling the story from Don Tillman's perspective. Everything that gets said is his take on the world. And I wrote it very quickly. I wrote it in four weeks. Baha, and five years. <laughs> but, but I'd done all the thinking, all the work in five years. It came out in the page remarkably quickly. I showed it to my wife, the writer and reader, and said, what do you think? And she said, what do you want to know? I said, um, does it read like a real book? Setting the bar low here. <laughs> and she said, oh, it's very hard to tell. It's quite different, Graham. I showed it to my daughter. She said, oh, it's better than I thought it would be, Dad. <laughs> I sent it, electronically of course, to my jogging friend. He texted me from the plane to Las Vegas. He was going to a conference there and he can text from planes because he's that sort of guy. And the text said, this is the greatest book I've ever read. <laughs> so with absolutely no useful input whatsoever, <laughs> and if you're a prospective writer, do not do what I did, but I sent it off, I, I spent four weeks tidying it up, sent it off to three publishers, entered the Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript just to get it read. I had no aspirations of winning the award or anything like that and I got shortlisted. And that was an absolute, one of those moments in life I think, yes, the world has changed. Somebody answered the question my wife didn't answer, which is, is it good enough? Yes, it got shortlisted, but the premier's like, I could have just died happy then, oh my God. But instead I just saw a door had opened a crack, I stuck my foot in it, I applied the shoulder and thought the world is, uh, and things happened very fast. It was February 2012 that I started writing. It was May 2012 that I got shortlisted and, a, and the publishers started talking to me. In June 2012, I won the award, which was really nice, which I hadn't expected and it, did, it didn't matter at that point, frankly. It was just the publishers were on board and that's what you want. Um, later in June, I got a deal with Text Publishing. They paid me an advance of, I think, $750,000. You don't know much about publishing, do you? <laughs> no way. <laughs> they, pay, they paid me in advance equal to three days consulting fees. So I couldn't <laughs> but I could have died happy. I, I was totally wrapped. And things again moved pretty quickly. Uh, I couldn't give up the day job at that point. But in August, um, led by the Germans, um, I started getting international offers um, for the translation rights and so forth. My wife and I were walking across UK coast to coast at that stage. And from the beginning to the end of that two-week coast-to-coast walk, we went from yeah, that, uh, that small advance from text publishing to having all the major publishers on board, you know, US, UK, Canada, France, Italy, Germany, and so on. At the end of that walk in August of that year, I was able to say goodbye to the day job. And uh, even before the book was published, which is just fantastic. Um, what's happened since the book got published? It's um, I think uh, Colin made it clear it's done very nicely for itself and I'm, I'm very, very happy about the support I've had from publishers around the world and obviously from text publishing here in Australia and particularly from booksellers and people who read books and talk about it on social media here in Australia. But it's come full circle with the film. We, uh, Sony Pictures optioned the film rights um, for all the reasons that, the, uh, that the, my, my um, producer had talked about and they said, Graham, we'll have one of the best scriptwriters in Hollywood adapt your novel. <laughs> I said, oh, pardon me, 
I remember my agent said, he said, that's very sweet, Graham. <laughs> but in the end, they decided they would run with me as screenwriter, so I, I wrote the script, rewrote the script. Um, my two drafts of that, I've now done that, paid for. It's what's known as in development, which means nothing certain in Hollywood, but there are A-list um, screenwriters, um, think uh, The Fault in Our Stars, and so on, working on it, um, and directors. Um, so so all, that is, all that is starting to happen, and there was not meant to be a sequel. I'd wrapped up all the loose ends in the Rosie, effect, in the Rosie project, but something nagged at me. And one of the things that nagged at me was that people would say to me, um, you know, that relationship, it wouldn't last. It's too weird. It, would, it wouldn't happen. Um, actually, let me just take some very quick time out from this. I'll give you a quick... I said I'd tell you something about the reaction from the Asperger's community. I want to do that very quickly. The, the Asperger's community overall has been enormously supportive of the book. Although, uh, the night I launched the book, Big crowd, not as big as this, but friends, family, rent a crowd, all those sorts of things in a bookshop. And I finished it, yes, round of applause, that's the launch of the Rosie Project. And this guy walks straight up to me and he says, Graham, my name is Daniel, I've got Asperger's, and I've got a problem with your book. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the worst case scenario. I said, go ahead, tell me. And he says, page 33, line 17. <laughs> he says... Don Tillman says he doesn't want a partner who is mathematically illiterate. The term is enumerate. <laughs> Don Tillman wouldn't make that mistake. <laughs> and I said, well, matter of fact, we considered that, me and my editors, and mathematicians use the term illiterate to mean something different from enumerate. Mathematically illiterate means not just you can't add, subtract, multiply, and divide, but you can't do calculus, you can't do algebra, and so on. It's different. And he said, oh, good. He said, I'll take three copies. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'll take the three copies. I said, why? Why three? Not that I was objecting. Why, why, why three? And he said, to give to my friends, to show them what it's like. And, and that has been... The, a very strong response from the... Look, I need to say, I don't identify as having Asperger's myself, but by golly, I've worked with a few people who probably do, um, who weren't diagnosed, but I've said, these are the guys i work with in information technology. I've had five people, oh, five relatives of people that worked with me come to me and say, I know you based on Tillman on my relative. <laughs> and people say, it's the voice of Sheldon Cooper in my head from Big Bang Theory. I have never, ever watched Big Bang Theory. Clearly, we're on the same territory. But what I, what I point out is that we tend to notice the similarities because these people all probably have Asperger's syndrome. Um, but we need more characters like that out there because we need to start seeing the difference between Sheldon Cooper and Don Tillman, that these people are different individuals. They're not just lumped into the one category be, because, of the, because of the similarities. So, one more story. The other, the other night, yeah, the other night um, I was at a book signing when we got to the front of the queue and she said, I've got to tell you a story. My dad, we all reckon he's got Asperger's syndrome. We've been going on about it for years because it would be helpful if he accepted a diagnosis and just made, you know, accepted that he does come across a bit differently to other people, all that sort of stuff. So we keep giving him books on Asperger's syndrome. He's an engineer, we figured that would work, you know. And, and she said, no, he says, no, that is not me. And said, finally we gave him the Rosie Project and he said, I'm coming out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because people really love Don Tillman, and that seems to have been, that's probably the most positive thing about it. And I've had so many people say to me, and this is not what I set out to do, but I'm very happy that this, this was a result, say to me, you know, reading The Rosie Project, I really fell in love with Don Tillman, and then I realised on the outside he looks just like that accountant that worked with all the pens in the pocket or, <laughs> or whatever, that weird guy who fixes my computer. Maybe that person is a Don Tillman underneath and is worth getting to know. So perhaps removing just a, a little bit of prejudice about those people. But there wasn't supposed to be a sequel. We're down to the last five minutes of my talk and I was in questions. Okay, I saw that look, Sally. <laughs> it's all right. Okay. So there wasn't supposed to be a sequel, but... I went to dinner with my writer's group. We were celebrating the pregnancy of one of them. And they said, Graham, you're going to need to give Mark, the expectant father, the talk. And I have a talk that I give to expectant fathers, actually. Bing! Don Tillman needs to have the talk. And that was the creative way into writing a sequel about how Don and Rosie's relationship might continue under the sorts of pressures that happen in real relationships out there in the real world. And how did I go about writing it? When I write, I'm a... Oh, so was it easier or harder? It was way easier to write the second book. I already had Don's voice. I already had Rosie's character. The two hardest things about the first thing were in place. I'd also done it already. And you all know that if you do something tricky for the first time, maybe it's stripping an engine, um, maybe it's making a really complicated lobster salad, such as in the Rosie project. First time I made that salad, it took me hours. The second time you got an idea of how it goes, how it feels. And that's, that was what writing the second book was like for me. I planned it all out, screenwriter style on index cards. You move them all around to get the right shape you want. And then after you've done that, writing comes quite smoothly. But I'd written 40,000 words, went to New York City, and for a holiday, for 20 days holiday, I thought, 20 days? I could finish this thing if I wrote 2,000 words a day, which if you're a writer, you know is a lot. But I needed to motivate myself. Um, I'm a very keen drinker. And I decided <laughs> that any day I didn't write 2,000 words, no drink. And my wife said, you can't motivate yourself with alcohol. <laughs> and I said, just watch me. <laughs> I didn't miss a day. <laughs> Christmas morning, my aunt says, you're up early. I said, 2,000 words before lunch. <laughs> so out, out of an alcohol-fueled but ultimately sound creative process came the rosy effect, which you can buy tonight. But look, this is a good time to switch into, we've got about 10 minutes to do some, to do some questions, maybe even 12 minutes, okay? 12 minutes and eight seconds. <laughs> so, go on, Sally, you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to manage this now, see? Why don't you go behind the lectern, I'll run around with the mic and we'll do it all together, okay? So who's first? There's a question, come on, we can do this together. Thank you for such an entertaining talk, Graham. Um, I'm a school teacher and I never mark in red pen because I think it's a very negative colour. And you signed my book in red pen before <laughs> today's. And you open your coat and show that you have a multitude of colours to choose from. Why red? <laughs> if anybody's got a copy of the Rosie Project, they'll note it has a red cover. 
If anybody's got a copy of the Rosy Effect, they'll notice it references the Rosy Project cover with a red rose. I figure that the universal signing pen by default is red. My apologies if it carries a special <laughs> message for you and reminds you of it. <laughs> but let, let, let it just remind you that Don has to live in a world where there are negative things happening around him. Actually, to tell the truth, Don lives in a very benign world. And part of the fun of sort of writing this was to say, look, most people are not actually out to, to pick on someone like Don. They're all, most of the people out there are doing their best. Actually, quick, quick story I can sneak in here. Because um, <laughs> it, I, I found it very interesting, the Asperger's side. After Don gets arrested, it's no big deal, it's not a big spoiler. After Don gets arrested in the Rosie effect, he, he finds a sympathetic cop at the police station who says, okay, I know what you're like. I've got a, I've got a nephew just like you. He says, what, a geneticist? <laughs> <laughs> he says, no, 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 he's an expert on spitfires and <laughs> that sort of thing. But he says, but I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna, not gonna lock you up, but I'm gonna have to get you assessed. Because, you know, I mean, next week you could go and shoot up a school or something, I'd be in big trouble. The Americans wanted that line taken out. Um, because the Newtown massacre, which is pretty raw, the guy had Asperger's. One guy with Asperger's. That doesn't prove anything whatsoever. They could have said he was a Muslim, they could have said he was black, they could have said he was tall or short or anything, but this guy happened, or he had schizophrenia, happened to have Asperger's in this case. And what I wanted, I, I insisted on leaving it in, because it's about casual discrimination. It's about just saying, oh, well, you're a person of colour, therefore, you're gay, therefore, ha, oh, just joking, I mean, just casual, but if you're copping that every day, you'd feel it. But I digress. <laughs> it's a habit. I shouldn't do this, but um, I have a quick question. Oh, here we go. The old panel asks each other questions. <laughs> go on, Marika, what's your question? Um, <laughs> it's a joke. I gather you've got a pretty high-profile fan out there um, in the guise of uh, Bill Gates, speaking of Asperger's. I was looking um, out there and saying... <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you just tell us really quickly about how that that came about, how you found out that Bill Gates was one of your biggest fans? Yeah, I looked on Twitter one morning and there it was. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Bill Gates had posted on his website that there were six books that he recommended reading over summer. Five of them were non-fiction and one of them was The Rosie Project. So it was the only fiction one. And he said some very nice things about it, which are quoted on the cover of The Rosie Effect, because that morning The Rosie Effect was going to print. And I rang up my publisher and said, Woo, did you see what Bill Gates said? They said, Stop the presses, more or less. <laughs> We're going to chuck that on the back of the book. That's it. Um, and then um, Bill Gates' people got in touch with my publisher, Simon and Schuster, and asked for an advanced copy of The Rosie Effect. People with power do those sorts of things. And then they got in touch and said, um, If Graham's coming through Seattle, we wondered if he'd care to drop in and meet, meet Bill and Melinda. Um, his wife. So I was in the UK at the time, and my wife and I rerouted our trip back from. This is a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is about three weeks ago, three four weeks ago. Um, we, I can tell you, well, it's more than that. 12th September. There you go. Um, 12th September, we came back via Seattle, met with Bill's media team and so forth, and then we had an hour or so with Bill and Melinda Gates talking about the books, and uh, Bill and I, Bill Melinda and I, made a, a little video which they're going to put up on the website in due course. So look, totally nice guy to talk to. Um, but he, he, my publisher, I got back, he says, well, Graham, is any publisher with a marketing hat might reasonably ask? He said, so, so the meeting with Bill, do you reckon he liked you? And I thought, the issue didn't come up. 
<laughs> we were a couple of IT geeks talking about something which happened to be the book. You know, the same way as uh, you know, Tom here in the front row I know from my IT day, we sit down and we talk about a database design or something like this. We're not going to say at the end, how did you like the guy? He seemed competent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, most of the Rosie project is Don's internal monologue. I'm really curious how that's going to be portrayed on a film. Uh, will it be mostly a voiceover? No. <laughs> no, and I look, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, film and books are different media. Sorry, I'm sounding grammar how to suck eggs. But film and books are different media, and sometimes people forget that. And what works well in a book is not going to work so well in a film. Books are very, very good. Their strength is at, at conveying a character's internal world. Films show the, the externals. They've got a very different sort of picture. I mean, for example, the comedy in the book comes out of Don's observations, right, largely. Whereas on the screen, it can come out of performance. Can come out of timing and so on. Uh, let, let me give you just a little example. Most of you read the Rosie Project. There's there's a bit in the Rosie Project where um, Rosie and Don go home in a taxi together, and Rosie invites him up, and Don freaks out because he thinks Rosie's testing him. Oh, Rosie says in the end after he doesn't come up, sorry. Rosie says to Don in a last desperate ditch effort. She says, "Do you find me attractive?" I think most people in this room would realise that was, you know, one last thing, just to say yes to that. Do you find me attractive? Don thinks, aha, uh -huh, it's a test. <laughs> she, wants to she wants to know whether I see her as a person or as an object. Attracti and, but, but on the other hand, I don't want to say she's ugly. He's really worked it all through. And, and finally he says, I haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks he's done really well. <laughs> okay. Now, okay, but without, if you just had on the screen, Rosie says, do you find me attractive? Don Paulson says, I haven't noticed. It doesn't work. What do you do? This is how you do it on the screen. One way of doing it on the screen. Rosie says, do you find me attractive? We see the look acting of panic in Don's eyes. We cut immediately to Jean's office the next day. And Jean says, you said what? <laughs> or we just see it in Jean's eyes. Or we just start on Don, and Don says, well, obviously, and he proceeds to explain it. So you externalise these things, and that's why you have buddies in films. Stefan, um, Rosie's buddy, has a very small role in the Rosie project um, in the book, but would have a bigger role probably on the screen as a buddy. So you, you externalise things, you try not to use voiceover, except in an artistic sort of way. There's a little voiceover in my current script, but not much. And it's done what I would think is a clever way, where voiceover gives us a real contrast to what's going on on the screen. So Don's actually describing the apricot ice cream disaster, and his voice is describing what he thinks is happening, and we're watching it actually play out and seeing the difference. But we're not having Don just crassly say, I thought this, I thought that. Um, yeah, and it won't always give you everything the book gives you, but that's film. Um, I can do short answers too, if you like. Questions? <laughs> All right, we've got a lull, so um, um, who do we think is going to play Don in the movie? Okay. Uh. No. <laughs> <coughs> Graham, congratulations on your new, new career. There's a, a few of us here in the IT industry that uh, looked to you in the past for your words on databases, data modelling and data design. Did, did any of that experience play a role in your writing these books? 
Look, believe it or not, yes, in quite a lot, okay? I mean, in a very simple way, um, I've written two books on database design, on data modeling, and okay, they are a long way away from romantic comedy. <laughs> but the, but, don't laugh. All right, laugh, I appreciate the laughter. But, um, I often, you know, when I was studying um, novel writing, I met a lot of people who couldn't handle the size of a novel. They could write 2,000, 5,000 words of deathless prose, but when they got to 30,000 words in a novel, it all just fell away and wasn't going anywhere. They couldn't handle the big picture, the structure, and so forth. So writing two substantial books on database um, design taught me to handle a big project, a big piece of writing, it taught me about the editing process, the publishing process, a lot of stuff that you know, you'd say, oh yeah, that stuff's trivial. Well, it isn't. It can hold you back, it can bring you down. So that was the, the trivial exercise. But the deeper stuff is I learnt a lot about design and I believe that writing a screenplay is an exercise in design. And if you want to extend that, coming up with a story is an exercise in design. The actual writing of it isn't. Writing the prose, having beautiful sentences, I don't think is designed. But the way you put a story together, you know, imagine you're doing a, who, a whodunit and you've got to have all the threads and that sort of thing going in different directions, tying up. It's design. Um, and I, I, I worked, you know, saw database, did the database and program design. I, I did a PhD in design theory, so I had a way of abstracting that. And um, if you want to, there's actually a TEDx talk that I did. So it's, I don't know how long a TEDx talk is, 10 minutes or so. It's up on the internet. Um, just look up TEDx Simpson and you'll see me um, making a bit of an attempt to answer, to answer your question in a longer and uh, more, you know, more theoretical and detailed way. So yes, that was the answer. Um, I, yes, there's a question just here. Oh, and in the movie, um, I would... Yeah, I would like the person to play Don to be someone you'd never expect but who is cast against type and does something amazing with the role and shows us something we never saw about Don in the book. Hi. Um, I find the standardised meal system to be a very useful innovation. And I was wondering, <laughs> I was wondering where, um, where it came from and whether you use it as well. Um, I certainly do not use it. <coughs> And, well, and, and if Sally is kind enough to thank me at the end, the one thing she has to do is to say thank you, Graham, and not Don. I've been called Don about a dozen times. <laughs> we are different people, more or less. Um, there's a little bit of Don in me, of me and Don, probably about 27.5%, I think. Um, <laughs> but the standardised meal system was borrowed. The standardised meal system came from a former girlfriend's mother who had to bring up four kids as a single mum working a full-time job, she had no time to go to the market and see what might be fresh today and come up with something. She just had to get that job done with food, get them all fueled up. And Sunday night was roast lamb, Monday night was lamb rissoles, and on it went. Um, they, they always knew what they were going to have for dinner. They could choose to go out, I guess, when they got older. But yeah, so she really used it. And a lot of people have said what you said, standardised meal system. You know, if you wanted to, spread it over a month. Put some variations in it. Say fish, it could be different fish. You know? Anyway. You know. uh, one last one, he said. One last question. Who have we got? Oh, I can't see. Oh, there's a hand up in the back corner there. Yep. There's no. a hand up in the no, back corner. It sounds a bit freaky, doesn't it? No, no, no. There, there you go. It's the luck of the draw. Uh, ask me over your freshly purchased copy of The Rosie Effect. <laughs> 
Can you elaborate on how your wife, the psychiatrist, helped you to develop and um, sort of elaborate more on the ro d character of Rosie? And also, did she have any impact on any other characters or situation? Okay, I think the word elaborate in a double-barreled question is dangerous at this time of the evening. But let me give you as short an answer as I can. My wife, the, the problem I had with Rosie was essentially that she had to need Don as much as Don needed her. And therefore, she, and, and she also had to be a strong person. I didn't want someone who just needed him because she was pathetic. Um, so, I, I wanted to, so my wife helped a lot with what the backstory might be, what her, her, her parenting situation and so forth might be there. Uh, my wife is my biggest collaborator. She's a huge help with plot, but she also writes. Um, and she has her first, she's, she's cut back on her, on her work um, and you know, is passing on to the next generation and she has her first mainstream novel which is called Medea's Curse um, coming out at the beginning of next year. So, and we work very closely together. Alright, I think that's it. so much. I bet you're all really glad that you made it out tonight because I think a lot of people uh, didn't want to brave the cold and more for them. This was great. It wasn't just a book. It was a stand-up comedy routine, which was fantastic. So what a treat. Thank you. <laughs> there's, a, there's a tiny bit. There's a tiny bit of Don in him. There really is. He had a little <laughs> clock there and he set it up and he kept looking at it. And, uh, um, so, uh, Graham, not Don, Graham will be signing books up in the foyer tonight. Uh, there's both books, the first one and the second one, but especially the second one. It's a cracker if you haven't read it. It looks long, it, it's really great, it's a really quick read. So, thank you for reading books and buying books and thank you for reading the Canberra Times because most of you probably found out about this via the Canberra Times. So, thank you very much, we really appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.